This episode of the Tome Show is brought to you by SkullsplitterDice.com slash Tome Show, seller of premium dice and accessories. And listeners like you, thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links and our wonderful patrons over at Patreon.com slash The Tome Show. Welcome to the Tome Book Club of October 2019. The Tome is a D&D news reviews and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm your co-host, Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, full book club style. And our book this time around is Dragons of Autumn Twilight by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Seems appropriate to talk about uh, a book titled for autumn here in October. Uh, Our next episode, we will be reading The Quest to the Uncharted Lands by J. Lee Johnson. Uh, And we're going to read that for January. We're going to give ourselves an extra month um, because December is hard to find times to record. So, Yes. Unfortunately, this year I won't be moving during that time period. That'll be nice, yes. (laughs) And with us, as always, is Eric Paquette. Hey, Eric. Bonjour, hello. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about the first Dragonlance novel. It was written and released together with an adventure module following the same storyline. So it's the book that introduced the world of Dragonlance and changed the world. Since then, there have been sequels, follow-up series, spin-offs, prequels, and more. I thought I read somewhere online maybe a movie? No, there was no movie. That never happened. <laughs> there is a movie. No, no. That, I'm pretty sure that didn't, doesn't exist. It's, it, it's a collective hallucination by a bunch of, bunch of people. It's good. It has some... <laughs> Good uh, voice actors. It has some fantastic voice actors. I mean, that yeah. movie that doesn't exist uh, <laughs> would theoretically have some fantastic voice actors. I think Kiefer Sutherland, as I recall, was Raceland. Um, Lucy Lawless was in it. Yes. Um, um, Michael Rosebottom. Yeah. Uh, uh, James Marsters. Lots of big name actors just showed up in. In, in, for a story that should have been fantastic, let me tell you. <laughs> but anyway, uh, before we dig into Dragons of Autumn Twilight, uh, we're, I needed to mention our sponsor, Skull Splitter Dice. They make premium dice, both plastic and metal, and they offer a discount to Tome Show listeners like you when you use the coupon code Tome Show. That's all lowercase letters, all one word. I've bought several sets of dice from them so far. Uh, and their metal dice are probably some of my favorite metal dice that I own. I bought metal dice from several different people at this point. Um, and I really like the, the Skull Splitter metal dice. I feel like I like that some of the sets, the, the D20s, are just a little bit larger. So it's really easy to, to pick them out of the, the big pile of dice uh, behind my DM screen. Because uh, I need that D20 more than anything else. And I also like that they their molds have like rounded some of the edges on their dice. Uh, metal dice have particularly sharp edges that you don't notice so much with plastic dice. Um, so having those rounded edges on the D6s, and I think it was the D8 and the D10 are a little bit rounded as well, um, are a really nice um, thing for them to do. It sort of has this, this nice sort of hand feel um, that other metal dice that I own um, don't have just because of that little attention to detail with those rounded edges. Um, so it makes seems to make a world of difference to me. You should check them out at skullsplitterdice.com slash tomeshow and use the coupon code tomeshow for 15% off. 
Look, mate. Three generations ago, my ancestors forged the Great Blade Skull Splitter. With it, they won the Goblin Wars, the Hobgoblin Wars, the Orc Wars, the Demon Wars, the Elf Wars, and the Gelatinous Cube Wars. And that one doesn't even make sense, because they don't have skulls. Now, all these years later, the legend of the Great Skull Splitter grows. Offering dice to help you create your own legends, Skull Splitter Dice makes the highest quality dice beautiful dice of both plastic and metal. Want to roll bones that look like bones? Or just something with enough heft to split the skulls of your enemies? Skull Splitter Dice has that and more. Check them out now at SkullSplitterDice.com slash Show and use the coupon code TOMESHOW with all little letters and get 15% off. Now get out there, split some skulls, and build some legends. Okay, so we are back. It is time to talk about Dragons of Autumn Twilight. Um, so I guess let's get into it. Uh, Dragons of Autumn T- Twilight was like one of the first D&D novels I ever read. And then I hadn't read it for since then. You know, so since like <laughs> fifth or sixth grade until until this book club. Uh, and so it was really fun to go back and read it again and to see what I noticed about the story that I didn't notice before. If I'm being honest, like this series sticks out in my head so vividly, but the first book is almost completely lost to my memory uh, until I reread it. Like there was so much about this first book that I'm like, oh, I had like the after the rest of it, like it, I remember the first book is largely feeling like the setup to the real story that happens in books two and three, but I don't know that I felt that way this time around. I'm curious what your uh, what the experience of, of the two of you was. Well, Mila, I read the book also in high school. I'm not sure if it was the first one series I read or if I started with Dark Sun, but around that time is when I first got into it, and uh, I. Remember more, more from the book, the first book than I expected to actually remember. Mm-hmm. There were still some spaces that, like, oh, okay, this this felt I didn't I had totally forgotten, but there are still uh, some places that I remembered. Oh, yes, I remember when this happened. I know that. So, and uh, certain characters, like. I remember when I was a was a was a teen. I really liked Raceland, as most boys of my age did. Mm-hmm. But it, uh, growing up, I actually prefer now uh, Hasselhoff. Okay. See, I liked Hasselhoff back then too, but not not for the aspirational qualities that I had. You know, being a a, a teenage outsider who who yeah. wanted to you know be powerful and show everybody what's what. Uh, yeah. Which was sort of the Raceland uh, uh, power fantasy, right? Exactly. Uh, Tasselhoff was always the comic relief and the funny one. Yeah. So, Tracy, this is your first time reading a Dragonlance novel, I believe. What, what was your experience like? It was pretty good. Uh, 
there's probably like I don't know how much we want to go into the book quite yet, but well, um, however much you want to. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that was kind of interesting having come into it, and this is not knowing fully that it, like I kind of knew it was the first book, but it didn't feel that way from the start right. because you're kind of put in the middle of a larger story that's happening. So one of the jokes I was going to ask you was when you did you set up a time later for all of your friends to get back together and talk about the book you read, right? <laughs> I read this book in fifth grade, and we all made an agreement that in in tenth grade we would all come back and discuss it. <laughs> Which is how the book kind of starts out, and then right. there's this character that's a big character in it, but never actually appears on screen, and that's Kitiara. Yes, and, and Kitiara plays a much bigger role later on, so she's sort of uh, uh, foreshadowed in this book, but but shows up more prominently later. And then. There are a bunch of other things that are kind of similar. Like it's set up as if you're already immersed in this world and know everything about it. Um, you know, kind of like the the nod to uh, Peladine, or I don't remember how to pronounce the the, name. the audiobooks pronounces it like that, and I've always pronounced it Paladine. Right. The audiobook uh, pronounces things because Tracy, I think you and I both listened to the audiobook. Yeah. Uh, I didn't. I didn't like the way they pronounced Paladine. Uh, as Paladin, and I also didn't like the way they pronounced Draconian, um, to the point that Wait. I can't even remember how they said it. But it, they're they're dragon people, so Draconian is was I, I, they got the, that vowel wrong. <laughs> so right. So it was just it was a it was it was not it did not feel like an introductory book in that way because there were some huge things that it almost felt like you were expected to know about even though they did the inter- cursory introductory to that character or to that mm. concept. Yeah, they just sort of throw you in the middle of it and you yeah. you have to assume that you know you sort of have to read it as these relationships as as read, you know. Right. Even though they they weren't. Although they have I meant we mentioned in the intro they have since since the this original series came out, they did go back and do some prequels as I recall that tells tells those stories. Um, what happened to those characters in those years right but i just thought it was actually kind of cool in terms of you know it was clear that there was a fleshed out world which makes sense because they are also using it as a D setting um and, and things like that so that ma- made a lot of sense to me but we haven't really talked about what the story is about yet we just kind of talked about the craft of writing it that's true a little yeah bit. and the craft of writing it was weird uh as far as D novels go i don't know that they've ever that anybody's ever done this experiment any other time. But as I remember the story, listening to stories from Weiss and Hickman, um, I recall them telling the story that they were approached by TSR to to write this, this novel series and write the adventure modules sort of side by side. So they were writing the adventure modules and the, the novels simultaneously. Uh, and so... They would release around the same time, and that I and I that's a way different way of sort of crafting the story because they have to somehow craft a story that could serve both purposes, right? As opposed to like writing one or the other and then adapting it to to the other medium. Yeah, well, it was a bit about the same time that period for TSR where they did for other well because Dark Sun also they crafted both the the world the first the Prince Pentat series mm. and the first adventure around the same time. Did they? Okay. Because, because they, the first adventure for 
the, the uh, first adventure of uh, Dark Sun Freedom is you are a slave in Tyr while the whole events in the back of Kalak making his cigarette. Mm. So all those events of the first book are in that first adventure, but you're just seeing from a different perspective. So it was pretty much TSR's style of doing um, that at the thing time. At that time. Okay. Well, well, although they, they seem to have taken a different approach because if you ever look at the Dragonlance, uh, those original Dragonlance adventures, it's not sort of playing in that world while this story is happening. You're actually playing these characters. Like, here's the yeah. NPCs. Do you want to be Tannis or Tasselhoff or Raceland or whoever? Right? And then you just play literally this story. So speaking of story. Yes. Yeah. Should, yeah. We, should we go through the story a little bit? Yeah. Tracy, um, I can give s- it to us. Um, so we start off with uh, uh, the aforementioned party of um, – I forget how many people there are total. Yeah. I, I, I – could you know for all these years that I, I haven't read it or reread it, um, I could name every single one of these characters for you. So so I know I know I, I knew how many people there were, yeah. but I didn't count them until this reread. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a party of like ten, and some <laughs> of them aren't even there. And then there's these other like characters that join later on too, and they get even yeah. bigger. And oh my gosh, like this is yeah. the biggest D and D party ever. I don't want this right. many players at my table, <laughs> but. So there's the, the relatively smaller starting party that had split five years ago with the agreement that they'd all get back together. Yeah. One of them could not make it. Um, while they're kind of hanging out, um, things start catching fire a little bit, if I recall correctly. Well, yeah. Um, so, And that was um, interestingly done for reasons that don't become clear until you get further into the, the series. Um but but yeah, so you got the you got the characters. So we get, yeah, we go get ahead. Inter- yeah, we get introduced to Solace and the fact that the um, Solace is built out of these trees. Um, it's built the in Melanoid. the trees. It's actually like up yeah, in built the trees. in trees. Yeah, yeah, sorry. So they're in an inn that's and there's a fire, and so they're up and they have to get down, and then there's a bunch of uh, searching going on because they're basically looking uh, for for someone. Yeah. A, hold, a holder of the blue crystal staff. Right. Yes. And, and in that that in the end of the last home, you have your party of of Tannis, who sort of is introduced as the leader slash almost lead character, if there is one. Um, at least that was my experience this time reading through it. Uh, Tannis, the half elven who's been running around for the last five years, growing a beard. Yeah. Um, then there's the dwarf Flint, um, who. In this second read through, I realized had a, has a much smaller role than I think I would have liked him to have. Like Flint almost comes off as a little flat as a character, um, kind of playing a stereotype. Yeah, uh, he, yeah. That's my impression too. That guy he was just there. I, I I recalled him having a bigger role. Maybe it's a second. The other books that he has a bigger role, but yeah, in the first book, not as big as I remember. Yeah. Um, Tasselhoff, who Eric mentioned, who is a kinder, which is kind of the Dragonlands version of halflings, but more trickstery, if you will. Does that work? Um, that works. Always stealing things and never taking anything serious and having a, a supreme sense of no fear and all wanderlust, um, getting themselves in all kinds of trouble. Um, and then let's see, who else did we meet on the road? Did we meet Sturm on the road or not until we got to the end? Sturm was at the inn. Okay, so they get to the inn and they meet up with Sturm, who is um, this 
this wannabe knight of Salomnia, right? His was his father was a knight of Salomnia. He's inherited his sword, and uh, he's growing the mustaches, and he wear, wears the fancy armor and carries the fancy sword, and does all you know. It's all about honor and and what have you. Um, then you also have Caraman and Raceland. They're the twins. One of which is the big, burly, not very bright uh, warrior type, and the other is the sickly, weak, um, but well, physically weak, but but smarter than everybody else and, and believes it too. Um, wizard, or not even wizard, mage, because this was written during first or second edition. Um, it was first edition. First edition, so it's mage. There's no wizard or sorcerer difference. It's just the mage. Um, and then who am I missing? The one that, well, the, the one of their members that is not showing up, which is the half-sister of the twins. Of Caramara which Raceland. is Yeah. Uh, yeah, which is Kitiara, who is the lover of tennis. Well, off and on, right? Off and on. <laughs> right. She's the the human love interest for tennis, as opposed to, as we'll discover later on, the, the elven love interest that he has in Loriana, uh, which is also a little bit weird, given that um, Loriana is from the family that kind of sort of raised him. Right. So that that has a, a an interesting angle to it. Uh, so that's like the core group, unless I forgot somebody. I don't think I did. Uh, but then about halfway through, we add um, the barmaid, uh, who is an old friend. Tika joins the party. Uh, well, she, yeah. She's much, much farther along. First, though, we have Storm has been escorting Gold Moon and Riverwind. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot Gold Moon and Riverwind. So pretty, you're pretty crucial to the whole thing. Yes. <laughs> tell us, who, tell us who they are, Eric. They're both members of the Kishu tribe, which is a, basically a native autochthon uh, tribe. And uh, uh, the Gold Moon is the chieftain's daughter. And Riverwind is her bodyguard and romantic interest for the Gold Moon. Hmm. But also Gold Moon is, bears this blue crystal staff that... Uh, everyone seems to be looking for. Right. All right. Did we hit all the characters so far? I think so. I think so. Think so, so that's the yeah. party. So as Tracy mentioned, there's there's a fire uh, in the end of the last home, and they they take off because there's, what, are there draconians yet, or is it just hobgoblins at this point? Running all over Solace looking for the, this blue crystal staff. Uh, it is, currently right now, it's just the dracon, just the hobgoblins. The hobgoblins, yeah. Yeah, um, but it'll be draconians later, uh, and so they go. They go into hiding because it turns out that um, Riverwind Staff is the Blue Crystal Staff. Yes, um, and they they go into hiding. They kind of escape. They're they're accosted by uh, the, this force, and at that point, at the point that they're getting on the boat, is I think that's draconians. Yes, is that, is that yeah? So they're they're yeah. uh, draconians join the chase and they, they cross this boat to, to escape. Um, and they're like, Oh, by the way, we have this blue crystal staff. I guess we should take it somewhere. And they decide to take it to Haven. Yes. To the high seekers of Haven, which is the, uh, they have a, there's an anonymous order there of truth seekers that set up after the cataclysm. Yes. Cause which is part of all that history that Tracy, Tracy mentioned that yeah. they, they kind of always allude to, but never really get into too much detail on. Yeah. Well, part of the important of this story at this point in time is the fact that gods have abandoned 
the, the world, or rather, people have abandoned the gods. Depending on your perspective. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tracy, you mentioned that there was this, this, you know, glut of setting and history and detail there. Um, were you keeping up with the story at this point? Were they dealing with the cataclysm and the lack of gods and all that? I mean, I just said, okay. And then continue. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's that's how everybody handled it when they read it back in the day, because that's all you had. Yeah. Right. Said, like, oh, okay, well, that's just the world, and you move on. Yeah. <laughs> and, it was, and it's not like you lack it, and so it's confusing, because they allude to it. You know, they tell you kind of what you need to know, and then move on. And if you're curious right. about the details, well, keep reading, I guess. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, and I mean, the thing is, is that they obviously did a bunch of stuff. This is one of the areas that I kept fighting with internally as as I was reading it is because on one hand, I was like, man, this feels like it's very stock in some ways, but very not in others. And I think they had to do the stock areas because it would have been too much otherwise. So, so what, like doing what do you mean it's very stock. Um, so a lot of like the patriarchal elements and I actually... Mm-hmm. In our show notes, I mean, in our script, I put down some themes I want to talk about, and one of them, one of them was the patriarchal mm-hmm. elements because they like pretty much all of the races we in or the groups that we encounter, like the elves and the humans in particular, have this kind of hierarchy. Like, it's not men are considered the leaders unless there's a reason for the woman to be the leader for the most part, mm-hmm. I think is kind yeah. of fair. <laughs> uh, they talk about it in the Elven Town that like like she, or I don't know who wrote it, so I shouldn't assume, but they even ex- explained that the whole head to household thing, so they only have some of the heads of the household come to the Elven Town and I know I'm skipping ahead. Um, but but it's like, had to, like they're explaining why there are women in this meeting of head to households and that's because like if the if the father dies and the the mother or the wife gets to be the head of household now and because they are together for life she, she's not going to remarry so she's right. just the head of the house now right which is just kind of an interesting thing to feel like having to describe mhm well uh, go ahead and, and i if, and when i when i read that read that part I was like well that's just describing how like for the most part that's how it really was anyway um you know except that women sometimes remarried and then uh but that was how like most of Europe did stuff (laughs) so I just thought it was interesting but most people don't think of it that way sure anyway sorry well and 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 similarly though like it has that definite theme but it also takes these moments to kind of slap that theme around a little bit you know right definitely you know because so it has sturm who's very much like oh i must protect the women and then the women are like you know go look over there i'm busy you know (laughs) i've got i'll take care of myself sort of thing going on right and then and the whole like uh even talking about people's preconceptions because there was this one area where um uh gold moon is is trying to reach out to Tannis and talk about, uh, I think it was Kitiara, and made some assumptions about how Kitiara would act, like as that older sister. Mm-hmm. And then there was this whole thing of like, well, you don't understand. She would just swear, and she talks worse than the rest of right. us do. <laughs> you know, uh, so that there was that type of stuff. And then the whole idea that um, when 
Golden Moon needs to uh, sacrifice herself. Sturm's the one that has to stand by. Right. And and had vowed to to obey her. Right. Which also is a subversion of that trip, traditional trope. Yeah. Well, and and ironically. Um... The 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 tribe that Riverwind and Goldmoon are from um, is arguably, possibly, in terms of, of female leadership, more progressive than all the others. Uh, while the chief was a man at the time, um, Goldmoon, as chieftain's daughter, was just assumed that she would be the next person in charge. Uh, and in fact, had been leading the tribe for some time as as her father had sort of fallen into senility. Uh, right, and that wasn't that wasn't you know anything that they mentioned as as odd or unusual that a woman would be leading the tribe. Um, so so it's strange that the the tribe that is um, what from a Western perspective would have been considered the the more savage group. Um, is actually significantly more socially progressive. Right. So anyway, we, we have jumped around and gotten a little ahead of ourselves. So they, they escape the, the fire and, and hunt at solace and, and slowly, but surely as they're working their way to Haven, um, I forget what it was. Oh, they, they ended up in their escape. They ended up sort of hiding up on these, what, what was it? Like prayer rock or whatever, this rock formation that kind of looked like two praying hands, um, which was the, maybe the first time that the really strong allusion to the Lord of the Rings struck out to me because the prayer hands felt an awful lot like weather top to me. Did anybody else get that impression? Just me. <laughs> no, I, I, throughout the story I saw some allusions to Lord of the Rings and the journey and all that which felt a lot but sometimes it came came in and sometimes it was its own thing so but yeah I did I did get some allusions of that yeah there especially in the first half I felt like there were some pretty strong allusions to um to Lord of the Rings, uh, which makes sense to a degree. If this is one of the early D and D adventures, and they're trying to to pull in people, you throw in some of these elements that would be the elements that they know in fantasy, yeah. right? Um, the prayer hands or prayer rock was my in my head. It was basically Weathertop, and then they was it Sturm has a vision, or somebody has a vision, and they they end up heading off in a different direction. Um, and then at one point they end up in the big forest and they're facing the undead and yeah. they're saved by the, was it the forest master? Yeah. The when, unicorn. When, yeah. Which is a unicorn, which came off to me as just a, a less jokey, more serious version of Tom Bombadil. Uh, Tom Bombadil or, or the ants. Maybe to some degree the ants. Sure. Yeah. Um, but even like, the, the, even where that illusion worked for me again uh, with Tom Bombadil, or that connection with Tom Bombadil was, if you just removed that entire scene as the Lord of the Rings movies showed, it doesn't really dramatically impact the story. And I think if you just completely removed the Forest Master from this book, it doesn't actually dramatically impact the story. It's some nice world. It's some nice world building. Um, 
But the problem is with the forest master is that he is the one who provides a Pegasus that permits them to move closer to to Pax to Zaxaroff. Right, which, you know, if you're writing, you're the first ones to write in this world, and it's your world, so you could just make Zaxaroff closer. You yeah. don't actually need that part of the story. You could have written it differently, but they didn't, yeah. right? And, and, it feel, yeah. and for that reason, it felt a little bit like Tom Bombadil to me, as much as I love Tom Bombadil. Um, but yeah, uh, along the way, they, they eventually end up in Zaxaroth, as you mentioned, Eric. Along yeah. the way, they, um, or is they, they, they find out that, that Riverwind and Goldmoon's tribe have been completely demolished and the last, they're the last ones left. Yeah, that's before. But basically, the reason why they're going to Zaxaroth is because the Forest Master told them to get the disc of Meshackle. Yes. So. So yes, they they were just they were given this quest by the forest master. Go to Zaxaroth, get the disc of Mishakal, um, and you know, uh, and, but you have to be there in two days. Yes, and it's more than a two day journey, and thus the Pegasi. Yep. Did I miss anything, Tracy? Um, maybe the only thing to point out is that back when they were still in the inn, uh, that fire burned someone, and they found out that the blue staff was incredibly healing. Right. But but that Rislin couldn't touch it. Right. Rislin can't yeah. touch it. It provides healing, uh, magical healing, the likes of which have not existed in the world since the Cataclysm. Right. And do you remember how that whole fire and everything got started? Why did the staff get used? It, it was the old man that was telling a story and asking uh, Goldmoon to sing a story about and about believe and I believe mm-hmm. they also sent Numa and then he the, uh, the 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 current leader of of Solas Fumaster I've always said Fumaster Toad although the the, yeah. the audiobook did not pronounce it that way yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah but Fumaster Toad uh, basically got angry because of heretics of spouting the bad because stating the old gods was sacrilege Mm -hmm. and thus he started he basically tried to start a fight but uh, the old man I believe started the fire and burned him or something like that well and then um, specifically told Tass to pick up the staff and use it to to knock the few master down so they could put the fire out. Yeah. Uh, and that's when the staff, you know, flared to life and, and healed them and did all that kind of stuff and revealed it itself and put them on, on the run. Uh, I point that out because, uh, the old man, Fisben, um, is one of my favorite characters, uh, initially, um, due to things that happened in the second half of this book. Yeah. Also, of note, Fizban is also a character that shows up in two other series, or rather, an, an anagram of his name, mm-hmm. uh, Zifnab and Fiznibnab, or something like that, <laughs> uh, or Zafnab, Zafnib, or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, shows up in two different series. One that I've read, which is the Death Gate cycle, and the other one is Star Star Shield Saga, or something like that. Okay. Well, and he shows and he shows up uh, fairly prominently later on after leaving yeah. for much of this series, um, and and I can I can hear Eric and I sort of tiptoeing around things because we don't want to spoil Tracy. 
Uh, I already was spoiled because that was the one character that my curiosity was like. Oh, no, <laughs> so you've already been spoiled. <laughs> so I, 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 I know who he is. You know who he is. Okay. Well, then in that case, we, we're not going to hide it because this is a book club, right? So uh, that was one of my favorite things about going back and, and reading this again because when I first discovered, I think at the end of the third book, that Fizban was actually Paladine the whole time. Um. I'm like, oh, well, that was a neat little twist. And then now I go back and reread it and, and can see exactly how he set everything in motion and, and did so very intentionally. Yeah, and the the big thing, one of the reasons I had to look it up and I just couldn't take it anymore was I was like, he's a god. Which god? Because <laughs> <laughs> it was just so... Obvious? Um, sorry, go ahead. Was it so obvious? It was a little obvious, and it felt like you know Greek Greco Roman mess. Uh, the you know the gods walking along, and 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 like there's a bunch of myths that that basically involve it that that I think we're pulled from. Well, I didn't pick up on it the first time I read it way back in the day. Yeah, they also, but yes, they also hinted at it because when they are at the lake before they get to the forest master, Raisin notices that in constellations that the the, the, the stars of the Valiant Warrior of Paladine and of Tachesis, the Queen of Darkness, which right. in, in terms of... In the, by the way, Paladine is Bahamut and Tachesis is basically Tiamat. Tiamat, yeah. So. Uh, in, in, it has been... In other editions, it has been explicitly stated that Bahamut and Paladine and Tachesis or Tachesis and Tiamat are the same gods. Just different names on different worlds. I don't know if that's official canon anymore, but that was canon at one point. Um, but yeah, so so that I, I really I've really enjoyed that bit, and that's why I wanted to go back and, and highlight how that whole fire thing got started in the end because it sort of highlights that like this was I don't know how far along I don't know what they were planning on doing with the whole thing, but it was very clear to me that there was some some fairly careful planning early on. Um, for what would be playing out later. And, and yeah, Raceland notices the, the constellations, but he also otherwise seems to recognize that Fizbin is, is more than he appears to be. I don't know that Raceland knows that he's Paladine, but he definitely knows, like, don't mess with this guy. Yeah. And, Ta- and Tannis gets a hint, a hint of it later on. Um, and, and then Tannis and Raceland have this conversation of like, wait a minute. What's up with that guy? And Raceland's like, yeah, now you know. You know, <laughs> that's what I've been trying to tell you the whole time. <laughs> so, so I really enjoy it because he comes off as this this bumbling, likable fool, right? But you see that in this bumble, bumbling, likable foolishness, he's actually the one setting all of this in motion and making this whole thing possible. There's even that yeah. scene, and we're jumping way ahead now. There's that scene in um, the later fortress, not Zaxaroth. Um, where they go, where they meet up with Verminard and all that at the very end. Uh, uh, Pax Tarkas. Pax Tarkas. Yeah, there's that scene where where Tass and and uh, Fizbin get separated, yeah. and Fizbin shows Tass this mural of Huma on a dragon with a dragon lance in a battle yes. or whatever from way back in the day, and Fizbin's like, "Oh, okay, good, you've seen it. That doesn't matter now, but that'll be helpful later on." Right, and then they move on. So, like, but yeah, did I did I not notice that he also sort of touched Tassahalf and sort of made Tassahalf sort of forget it or 
at this yeah. point in time. Mm-hmm. He did a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No. That, yeah. Go ahead. I think I think that was the time when I took a break and did a Wikipedia search. <laughs> Just find out <laughs> what was going on. I was like, "There's something." Well, and I yeah. keep I keep waiting. Uh, another spoiler here, but I keep waiting because I recall at the end of the third book when Tass realizes it is implied who Fisbin was all along. Um, it's because Tass is like sorting through all of the stuff that he stole in his pouch. Uh, and he finds like a little statue of a gold dragon. And the implication is that it's an actual dragon sort of polymorphed or whatever into the statue. And that Fisbin had given it to him at some point in time. And so I kept waiting to see if that happened in this book. Cause I couldn't remember, I didn't remember it happening, you know, when, when I first read the the series, and now I don't know where that happens because it didn't happen in this book. At least not that I caught. I haven't caught it either. Okay. So, but you remember the scene I'm talking about? Am I am I making that up in my head? I am. I do not remember that okay. scene. <laughs> I might but be making it up. But head. it's been a long time. So well, that's what I'm, I'm saying. Not, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that you have that it's not happening. I'm just saying I don't remember. <laughs> it's, it's been a long time for me, so I'm saying I could just be making that all all up in my head too. So. Yeah. Listeners, beware. So in any case, back to the story. Um, they end up in Zaxaroth. Uh, and it's in Zaxaroth that they, through a series of um, making friends with gully dwarves. Yeah, um, and we find out why, where, Flint, where Flynn spent most of his five years. Yeah, yeah. He's been, what was he? He was uh, imprisoned by gully dwarves. Yes. And so he's developed this intense hatred for gully dwarves. But meanwhile, Raceland befriends one of them, Bupu. Um, at first through a charm spell, but then clearly the charm spell shouldn't last that long, and she just sort of likes him. Well, in, in that edition of D&D, the charm spell lasts an amount of time based on the target's intelligence. And if the target's intelligence was really low, it could last months. Okay. Now, that said, I do remember um, Raceland having a particular affinity for Bupu and vice yeah. versa much later on in the series. Um, yes. So so I think I mean, there's some sort of weird sort of actual, you know, um, fond feelings there. Yeah, but it, it does start out with just for magic. Right. So. Yep. And so she helps them sneak in and they... Um, are going to try to cause a distraction and steal what they need from the black dragon that's down in there. And uh, the distraction more or less fails and Raceland is captured and they still manage to to get in and steal the um, the tablets of Mishkal, but largely because um, Goldmoon sacrifices herself. Uh, she goes in with the blue crystal staff and like, hits the dragon with it, disintegrating the dragon and herself simultaneously. And everybody's sad because Goldmoon just died halfway through the book. Yeah, but did we talk about Riverwind's near-death experience? No, go ahead. So before that, part of the reason we know that this staff is so powerful is that the dragon that was there had uh, charred, basically, Riverwind um, back before they got down into the city. Um to the point where, uh, was it Strom was about to kill him, kill him to put him out of his misery? Storm, yeah. Storm, yeah, sorry. And then they, they bring him into the temple, to the Michigas temple, 
and uh, through that and the staff, uh, Golden was allowed uh, is able to heal him back pretty much completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically brought him back to, from from death. Right. So he almost dies in a sacrifice, kind mm-hmm. of, because he's uh, trying to protect her and everyone else, and then she dies protecting everyone. Right. Uh, and then, and then the whole place starts to come down around them, and everybody flees, and they get out, and they get back up to the surface where this temple of uh, Mishkal was, and they find that uh, Gold Moon is there, fully formed and fully healthy, uh, having been saved by the goddess, um, and everybody's happy, and, and there is much rejoicing, right? Including uh, Boo Boo gives uh, Raceland a gift. A, which is a spell book of Fistanilis, which he was looking for, which was also in a treasure trove of the, drag, the Black Dragon Cassant. Yeah, which is another bit of, um, you could tell how carefully they had planned things out, because that Fistandandalus thing is going gonna, is gonna to come back and be a thing. That's not too spoilery, I don't think, Tracy. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. So you were about to say? Oh, the one of the things about it, it was just this um, idea, and I think I think it's a constant theme throughout it that uh, none of them are particularly powerful. The but, heroes, but, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the our knight could not just kill a dragon. Uh, our main magic user, I mean, or magi isn't going to be able to do fireball yet, which we find out later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a higher level spell essentially in the book. Yep. Um, and like, so all of these things, but through these, through interacting with the gods and other, th- other things like that, they're able to do these huge, um, accomplish these huge tasks. Sometimes it's through the gods. Sometimes it's just by angering a dragon and, and making it uh, enable the mechanism. Right. Which we can talk about later. Right. We'll get to that, yeah. Well, because, yeah, at this point, the idea that these characters would go toe-to-toe with a dragon is is laughable, even to them. Like, this is not even something that's feasible. So we don't fight the dragon. We sneak in, get what we need, and get out. Yeah. Um, if, if we fight the dragon, we're all dead. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and yet, here they are, and they take on this dragon, and then later on, there's more dragons. Yeah, and dragons in this world are were stuff of legends. These right. are the first dragons, and people are just meeting up. So because the dragons have been in hiding since the cataclysm, since the gods disappeared, yeah. which makes some sense, right? Because the the main gods are the god of good and evil dragons, the gods of good and evil dragons, and so when they disappear, when they go, when they withdraw, the dragons also are, are sort of withdrawing thematically in the same way. But now they're starting to come back at the same time that these gods are starting to come back. Um, so they get the the tablets that can bring uh, clerical magic and, and god uh, worship of the gods back into the world. And they head back to Solace where they expect to you know have some downtime. Uh, and it doesn't really work out for them because Solace is now under complete occupation. The town has been more or less razed. Um, the end of the last home has survived, but some dragon like lifted it up off the tree and put it on the ground. And it got repaired by, like, goblins. Um, and, and the heroes are there. And they're like, uh, this isn't what we signed up for. And then everybody's like, hey, these are outsiders that haven't been enslaved yet. Let's fix that. 
And they end up fleeing again. Uh, no, they end up captured again, yeah. don't they? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. they met up. They meet up with well, Galthanas, the son of the leader of the Quellenesti elves. Yes. Which is where Tanis was born. And thus, they, and they, after now, they get captured and put into a slave caravan. Right. Them as well. And, and this, this is the point where you've added Tika to the group because she gets uh, thrown in a cage with them. Yeah. And Fisbin um, gets thrown yeah. into a cage with them as well. Fisbin, who is the great and powerful wizard who wants to pick the lock with Fireball. <laughs> because that is a best spell to open up a door, right? <laughs> well, and I think it's fair that uh, that is the best spell in D&D, so you might as well use it for everything, right? Yeah. When you when, when all you have is a hammer, everything every problem looks like a nail. Yes. So. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, so they're being... Drawn, drawn along in this slave caravan, um, and the caravan is attacked by the elves, and they manage to escape, and they go off into uh, Qualanost, which is the capital of the Qualanesti elves, um, and that's where they have their Council of Rivendell. Right. <laughs> uh, and we get some more, some more of the Tannis background. He he was born and raised here, but he's half human, half elf. Uh, he was basically mm-hmm. raised. What's that? Like, hmm, that doesn't sound familiar. No, 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 not at all. Uh, he was basically raised by this elven family, which um, Galthanus is part of, and Loriana is the other. Um, is Galthanus' sister, who are the the children of the Speaker of the Sun, which mm-hmm. is like the their leader, which is also familiar, right? Because um, clearly Tannis is is Strider, uh, and uh, and he's got his elven love that was left behind, right? Right. Um, and then yeah, so they have their council. They decide um, what the elves have been trying to the mission that the elves have been trying to accomplish is to mess up the dragon armies by sneaking into uh, Pax Tharkis. And freeing all of the slaves, because there's a ton of slaves there. Uh, if we free them all, then that'll cause a lot of chaos, and it'll it'll wreak havoc on the dragon armies, and ha ha ha, you know, sabotage weakens our enemies. Yeah, and they're pretty much saying that they have to give up on their home and go elsewhere, even if they, even if they succeed on this, I believe. Right. That, that it looks like they're going to have to, what would you say, retreat to an elven homeland? Yeah. <laughs> um, so they have to go on. The, so they gather up their fellowship, if you will, uh, and head on into um, the elven, or not the elven, now I got it in my head, into Pax Tharkis, um, in order to to sabotage the, the, the dragon armies. Yeah. Um, they get into Pax Tharkis. They with difficulty, eventually make it to the slaves. And in fact, it's with difficulty, and then all of a sudden they we get a different point of view. And when we come back to the heroes, they're just there with the slaves. Yeah. They kind well, of skipped over some of the action there. Well, during the journey there, oh, yeah. there, there was also doubts that was happening between, especially with Tannis, about thinking there was a member of the group that was maybe a part of the bad guys, and 
Well, and some of that is related to the fact that on the way there, they rescued somebody who was being attacked by uh, part of the dragon army. Um, They rescued this guy and, um, and then, yeah. And and sort of brought him in because he's like, Hey, whatever it takes to to bring the fight to the draconians, I'm I'm all for it. Right. Uh, And then shortly thereafter, there's suddenly this, Hmm, somebody in this group is not to be trusted. It's either Gil it's or it's Raceland or it's the new guy, and nobody really trusts Gil because he's an elf and an outsider and kind of haughty and a jerk. Uh, nobody trusts Raceland because he's kind of a jerk and, and and thinks he's smarter than everybody else. Uh, and no, and, and nobody has a good reason to trust the new guy because he's the new guy. Yeah, um, which certainly. Like, I get where the distrust comes from the other two, but I thought it was pretty obvious who the traitor was, right? Yeah. Okay, I mean... <laughs> it, was, it wasn't subtly foreshadowed, at least yeah. for us as, as readers. Yeah. So eventually they make it into uh, Pax Tharkis, they sneak in, they find the slaves. The slaves are separated into three groups. There's the women, there's the children, and there's the men who are down working in the mines. They infiltrate the women. Um, from there, they dress up as women because that's how they're going to get access to the children. The women are allowed to see the children once a day, and they're allowed to see the men once a day. Uh, that way, everybody knows that the other ones are alive, and everybody cooperates, or else you know people start dying. Yeah. One thing I I did notice that I found was strange, considering how uh, how the Kishu looked. Progressive, but it's when there's a suggestion to Riverwind to dress up as a a woman, mm. and he's refusing vehemently because it's viewed as cowardice or something like that. Yeah, it's like it's but like a pu- they, it's a punishment. Yeah, Tracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they punish the people who are cowards or, or whatnot um, by making them dress as women, which has definitely stuck out at me. Uh-huh. Um, and the other thing, and I did look it up. The book was written in 1984, Four. I think. Yeah. Like at least that published in eighty four. Yeah, published in eighty four. Yeah. So one of the things that also stuck out to me was how they decided, like, who worked in the mines, because with um, there's been a lot of, or at least I've had a lot of um, people post in my timelines in the past, and I've looked into it. When you looked at the mines, like in uh, Britain and places like that, uh, you actually did have children and even women working in them, because the passages were so narrow to move a lot of the stuff around you needed the mixture of people yep so you need to be people that could swing the hammer but other than swinging or swinging the yeah sledgehammer type thing mm-hmm. uh beyond that it was really the smaller people who were very useful for for moving the rocks around and stuff like that not only were they useful i will point out but they were cheaper um, yes yeah that, that's one of the themes from that era uh, of um, European history and into the Industrial Revolution is that women and children got jobs, not always because they were better suited for the job, but because it, you could socially justify paying them less. Right. And so it was like a combination of those two. And it was just so it really stuck out to me that it was like only the men were in the mines mm-hmm. and that they were looking at this big honking, like, because they looked at Riverwind and they're like, he would be excellent in the mines because he's huge, although we might have to kill him because he probably isn't going to. But I was just like, he's way too tall. <laughs> yeah, how's it going to squ- They must be really wide tunnels in those mines. <laughs> yeah. So, 
But yeah, so they, they end up uh, with the dressing as women, uh, or at least putting on cloaks and stuff for people like Sturm who refused to shave his mustache. Uh, and and in Riverwind, sort of, when they went the same way, um, and they snuck in first to the children because they needed to make sure the children were safe before they they roused any rabble, so to speak. Uh, and the children were being watched over by this old, half blind, senile red dragon. Uh, what was his name? Uh, was it the Ember? No, Ember was the bat. The, yeah. the the big one. Flame strike. Flame strike. Flame strike. Yeah. Uh, it so, was a, and it was a, I thought it was a female dragon. It was. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That makes, yeah. I believe it was. Yeah. Cause right. it's actually important to the, sorry. It is. No, you're right. Because flames, flame strike story is basically that during the, the, the last big dragon war or whatever it was called, um, flame strikes own children died. And so flame strike in her senility, has sort of adopted these human children yeah. as her own children. Yeah. Her, her, she also is known as Metafleur. That's that's her real name, but yes. but, but dragons in, in Dragonlands always have sort of their real name and then they're mm. they're the name that the mortals call them, right? Yeah. So yeah, and so that's important because uh, Flamestrike has this really strong affinity, almost confusion about these children being her own children. Um, then they manage to, they, they, they start to get the children away and they manage to um, get to the men and let them know what's going on. And then the, the rabble is roused, so to speak. And there's a big slave revolt and, and fights happen. And But it turns out the dragon army wasn't gone. And Verminard, the, the evil cleric, the 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 what, the, the dragon high lord. Yeah, the other the other side of the coin to to Gold Moon. Gold Moon is the return of good clerics. Verminard has been a cleric even longer, worshiping Tiamat, um, the the queen of darkness, and so she yeah, and is the dragon high lord here um, on on the back of Ember, his great red dragon. They they did they never left. They were there all along, um, and a great fight ensues, and they're all gonna die because. Ember is uh, even less of a pushover than the Black Dragon was back in in uh, Zaxaroth. Um, but Ember talks about, you know, or says something about killing them all, women, men, and children. And Flamestrike freaks out. You're not going to kill my children. And so Flamestrike, who is old and feeble and senile and half blind, but it's described as well weaker, uh, Flamestrike is smarter uh, because... She's older, right? She has more experience, and she knows what she's doing, and so she's able to to bring it to um, to Ember after all. And then what? Well, while that line of the story is going on, the party has been split, mm-hmm. and uh, Tasselhoff and Fizban are. Um, making their way through some mechanisms and spying on some people and learning a lot of the stuff that's going on, including the fact that uh, Ember, or, yeah, isn't particularly always happy with, mm. I'll call him Voldemort, but no. <laughs> Verminard. <laughs> well, it's not, uh, it's, and it's not even that, that Ember is not happy with Verminard. It's just that Verminard thinks that he's in charge and Ember is pretty sure that she, that is it she or he? I don't remember. Um, anyway, Ember is pretty sure that they're in charge, or at least they have the interests of 
of Tachesis in mind better than Verminard does. Yeah. Right. And um, Verminard had uh, asked another gully dwarf that they had befriended to feed the dragon, which is basically the dragon should be eating right. uh, the creature. And instead, um, Tass and Fizban decide to do a small deed and they can't do the great deed, so they're just going to do the small deed of trying to save the gully dwarf. <laughs> Which they get almost done when Fizban's hat falls off, and he cannot rescue it before it alerts the dragon to their presence. Mm-hmm. And at which point the dragon chases them. They learn a lot about dragons very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> and the the main thing is that the, they had climbed up this chain to get away from... Basically, was it? It was a drow. It was a dead drow. It, was it reminded a, yeah. me a lot of a banshee. Yeah, I think I think that's what it was. It, statistically, I think I believe that was a banshee, and their story of it is that it was a it was a drow. I don't remember drow really being a significant thing in Dragonlance, other than this description of banshees. Right, and so um, they had climbed up the chain, and they're like, "Well, that, that's probably our best way to get out of here because this dragon's chasing us." So they try to go that way, and in the midst of chasing it, um, the dragon basically breaks the chain and sets off this whole beginning of a, the, the what is it the tower starts shaking we don't know what's going on would you say it's a out. would you say it's a chain reaction <laughs> <laughs> so yes so the tower starts shaking and we don't know what's going on so what is going on it's I think it was some sort of defense mechanism right? <laughs> The, the, it ends up unleashing these huge boulders, mm. which squash uh, at least, well, two people, mm-hmm. um, including the the Emerald Man, which we really didn't know too much about, I don't think. <laughs> yeah, that was always a weird part for the story for me. <laughs> like, they make um, this really big da- deal about the Emerald Man, Barum, um, and it's not entirely clear... Th- as I recall, even through this whole series, why Takesis is looking for him. I think there's another book or something that explains it. Do you remember, Eric? I do not. Uh, I yeah, feel I feel like they, they make a big deal about this character who just kind of shows up at the last minute and then doesn't isn't really a major issue. Right. And also, one thing maybe um, we should let folks know that, because you and I read the Audible version listen to it right. and that was like 20 some hours so there's a lot <laughs> it's a lot yeah no i remember uh, as i was listening to it i got i got about halfway through to the zach Saroth part and i'm like oh well that's basically the end of the story right and i looked at the time and I'm like oh no that's like half the story because because yeah. it feels like it's wrapping up it could have been split uh, and it was split into two books in one book much like yeah. lord of the rings right um so yeah, it felt like two books, and it felt like two related but could be separate stories put together into one book. I don't remember if the other books uh, in the series follow the same or had that same feeling, even if they have the same format. I don't remember them having the same feeling of feeling like two very separate but related stories. Although I would also point out very similar stories, right? Yeah. Ancient yeah. ruins, dungeon, sneak in you know, accomplish your mission, get out, sort of was well, the, the gist of both yeah, climaxes. And like, and like Avengers, they leave a lot of destroyed cities in their wake. Yeah, yeah, but they were all ruined cities anyway, so. Yeah. But also, <laughs> I think each book is about the equivalent of each adventure in the Dragonlance uh, series of be. adventures. 
So the so the 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 first adventure ends at exact Saroff, and now the, the second one adventure, where a bit higher level, is going to be Paxarcas. Yeah. Uh, and then at the end, um, and I kind of forget how it all wraps up, but I know like Verminard is having a hard time fighting. Ember is, is occupied by Flamestrike. Verminard's having a hard time fighting because he's wearing this big fancy dragon high lord helmet, but it, it doesn't allow him any any peripheral vision, and yeah. and that's his his great downfall, right? Well, and he's killed off by Tannis and Sturm, right? So he's killed off, yeah. uh, and the dragon army is defeated. Yay! Victory yeah. to the good guys. And they go back to the elves, yeah. and there's there's great partying and great rejoicing, and, and everybody's happy. And two epilogues. And two epilogues. Yeah. And then Fizbin's actually Fizbin's there in the in Qualanost as well, and he's not very happy. He's like sitting in the corner by himself and scowling at people who try to get too close to him, and then suddenly yeah. he's just gone. And isn't the Emerald Man there too? Is he one of the? That may yeah. be. I don't remember that. No, he is too at the end. Barum so so just like fades into unimportance for me in, in, in this whole series, yeah. uh, and I and I'm trying desperately to remember why he's a big deal. I guess maybe yeah. if we continue uh, and go on to the other books someday, um, I'll be reminded about what's going on. Or maybe not. Maybe he just fades away and we don't find out unless you read a different separate spinoff book. I don't remember. <laughs> they, they did some stuff like that in this series. It was just stuff that they clearly didn't have time to get to or to explain and so they just did it elsewhere. Um, but yeah, and then it ends, um, as I recall, it ended with, oh, it was, it was uh, Goldman Riverwind's wedding. It ends in with Goldman Riverwind's wedding and everybody's there and it's all happy and, and um, everybody, you know, it's all it's all sunshine and, and roses for for Kryn for the rest of time, right? No, because Rayson <laughs> points out at the end to Tannis that the that the uh, constellation are not back for the Takesis and the the warriors, so right. they're and, still and there, and there out was, there. Yeah, go ahead, Trace. So it becomes Star Wars. Yes, yeah, they're still out there. Um, and, and there was also, there's this, um, this discussion at one point about how, um, I think this is from this book. Maybe I'm thinking of something else that I recently read, but, uh, there was this implication that like Tachesis is like, you know, this sucks, not because there was resistance, but because I thought I'd have more time before the other gods stepped up and tried to stop. Yeah. Was that, was that the story? Am I remembering that right? You don't remember. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I do not remember. I might be conflating it with something else I recently read. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and then, then that's more or less the end. And then the second epilogue, are you referring to the, the Song of Huma? Yes. Yeah. yeah, and that's another bit where, where you get all this like deep historical lore of the setting for something that at this point in the story isn't super relevant, is it? It's, no, well, but it's it, right now, no, because it's it, yeah, and all that, but it it sort of explains why the world's called Dragonlands because of you mine the lands. Yeah, it sort of gives the gives some of the the gist of this great you know, legendary hero Huma who who forged or wielded the Dragonlands on the backs of dragons and fought in the lot in this big war in the past um, between yeah. good and evil and what have you. 
Yeah. One thing I did notice this time of reading it uh, is the fact that the uh, when he present the song of Yuma, it is considered the greatest work of the Elven Bard Quidvelin Saw. And since we have Lord Saw, and I know, so I'm like, is that are they related? Or no? mm. I don't think so. So I'm pretty sure Lord Soth was just a straight up human. I don't think he yeah. has any relation to any elves. Yeah. Anyway, other thoughts, uh, things that we want to talk about for this book before we move on. What do you mean? What do you mean, end the episode, move on, or? Yeah, yeah, wrap things up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did want to talk about the theme. I don't know how to put it. Of well, the reference to rape in the book. Okay, talk yeah. about it. Ah, uh, cool. So, um, a lot of times. Like, we've read other books from the same era where it's just constantly the female characters are in fear that this that rape could happen to them or right. some sort of sexual assault. And honestly, in this book, that doesn't come across as much. There's a couple of times where there's a reference of, oh, the slave master would really like to see that woman. But it's not even that lewd of a conversation that's yes. happening. Mm-hmm going on but the big thing the time when rape does come up is in tannis's backstory um mm. and and so oh sorry from what, I, from what i recall his mom was raped by an elf or, uh, or, or, or no. was it or, or, or was his mom an elf and raped by a human yeah his mom was an elf the wife of the was it i forget the guy's name the head the, elf the, 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 the sons. Sons? Yeah, the Seeker of the Sun's uh, brother's wife was during some sort of uh, conflict raped by a human male. And that is how he is brought into the world. And uh, she ends up kind of, it's not, it wasn't clear to me if it was suicide or just the being broken over it, Mm -hmm. ends up dying while he's young. And thus um, he gets raised by his Mm -hmm. uncle. Um, and that's what causes a lot of the friction in somewhat too, because he is half elf in a society where the elves don't really like the humans and is the product of rape. So the thing is, is instead of it being this like lewd and lurid discussion about uh, a female character's body or something like that, it's the, what happens afterwards and the implications of it and how characters have to go on from that sort Mm -hmm. of event, which is not something is something people often ask for in fiction, but doesn't often happen. Right. Um, So some people could have the criticism that she's basically fridged (laughs) for this to happen, but it's not to move on the story, right? It's just something that happened. And, the the story is about how people move on from that and how he, for instance, hated his human half for a long time and he winds up wearing this beard because he's come to some sort of peace about the fact that he's half human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although there is also um, a little bit of discussion of, I guess I would put it as statutory rape when it comes to Karaman and Tika uh, at one point, right? Because she's significantly younger and, and they have this sort of burgeoning... Um, lust for each other at one point, and then right. I, I think it was Loriana has a conversation with him. It's like, hey, just so you know, like she's totally into you, but she's never been with a man, and she's just a girl. You should probably take it slow, you know. Um, <laughs> right. She may not be as ready for this as she thinks she is. Yeah, I thought it was Goldmoon that mentioned it. Yeah, oh, was it Goldmoon? Okay, 
yeah and and also just the 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 thing there too about you know going going slow and um that ongoing conversation of like there's rumors that say that she's had a lot more experience than she really has um so yeah now that said um not to get overly spoilery, but the theme of rape comes up fairly significantly in, I think, not in this series, but this, the series after this series. Um, the Dragonlance Legends? Yeah. Uh, am, yeah. I, am I remembering that right, Eric, that it's in that series? I think so. Yeah. So, so there's a fairly significant um, issue of rape there, although they then, the characters involved then end up spending a significant amount of time dealing with the, the consequences and the aftermath of that. Um, so it's not, it's not sort of a, a, a thrown aside sort of thing there either. Right. So maybe, maybe someday when we get, I think, well, like five books into the series. So. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just it contracted, it contrasted to me to like Sheep Herder's daughter, um, Elizabeth Moon series, uh, the mm. PAX trilogy, where like it figures super heavily and she's like constantly afraid it's going to happen. And right. it does happen to other characters and eventually to her too. So it was just a very interesting dichotomy there of, of how to approach it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Very good. Any other things that people want to talk about in this uh, book before we move on? No, I'm good. All right. I, I think we'll call that the end of the episode. Uh, so it is time to say goodbye. We want to say thanks to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Um, if you want to join our wonderful patrons, you are welcome to come over and for as little as a dollar a month, become one of our patrons and support the show very directly. And then I will also go there to um, Patreon and occasionally ask for guidance on, on things about where we should be taking the show, what kind of things we should be looking at, reviewing, uh, doing advice on or other things that we might do with the show in the future. So um, we'd be happy to see uh, all of you there and and continue the conversation in that way. And we also want to thank all of you who support the show indirectly by shopping at Amazon and DMs Guild. Uh, The holidays are coming along soon, and people are going to be doing a lot of shopping. And if you're like my family, you'll do a lot of it on Amazon. Uh, If you click through that link from thetomeshow.com, you'll get the exact same experience, but we get a few cents for, for every dollar of sales. Uh, and I distribute that out to all of our wonderful contributors here at the Tome Show to show our support uh, and and the, our thanks for all that they do to make the Tome Show possible. So um, do those things. And if you'd like to contact us, you can send an email at thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can call our biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME, 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. You can find me online at Sarah Dark Magic and on Twitter and sarahdarkmagic.com. You can find Jeff at, at Squatch, that's S-Q-U-A-C-H, and at The Tome Show. And Eric, where can folks find you? You can find me on Twitter easily at Eric M. Pack, E-R-I-C-M-P-A-Q. Show notes and other great shows are at thetomeshow.com. And that is our thoughts on Dragons of Autumn Twilight. Next up in January, we will be reading... Uh, the Quest to the Uncharted Lands by Jalee Johnson, which is the third book in her series that I can't remember the name of right now. World of Solace. The World of Solace. And so uh, it is the third, and so far as I can tell, final book in the World of Solace series. Um, so we'll be reading that and discussing it come, um, come January. So until then, keep turning the page, Tomites.
I'm on the wall.